I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we shine the spotlight on the outstanding legal career of Lady Justice herself, Constance Baker Motley. Change trains in Cincinnati and get on a Jim Crow car. Well, I knew that was going to happen, of course. Everybody knew that happened to black people, so I never believed it was possible for things like that to happen. And nobody do anything about it. Well, I read that in the New York Times this morning, and I'm sure they're always accurate. (laughs) Constance Baker Motley knew she wanted to be a lawyer from the time she was 15 years old. In her third year of law school, she would join the NAACP Legal Defense Fund as a clerk to Thurgood Marshall and would later go on to handle more than 250 cases in federal courts. We're joined by the unqualified expert on just about everything that has to do with the life and legacy of this remarkable legal figure. He is the producer and creator of the documentary, The Trials of Constance Baker Motley. And more importantly, he's her son. Joel W. Motley III is a managing director of Public Capital Advisors, an investment and banking firm in New York, and is our guest today. Joel, welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. Joel, before we get into the documentary and all of the important work that she did, I I just got to ask, when did you first realize that she was not just mom, but she was Constance Baker Motley? (laughs) Well, every night at the dinner table, uh, my mother and father and I would watch the evening news, which in those days was pretty much the Huntley Brinkley report. And uh, probably when I was around five or so, I remember seeing her on national television. And I think that uh, opened my eyes to the fact that she was a special person. You know, that would have been around 1957 or so. Uh, That would have been around the time of Little Rock or Arthur and Lucy case. in Alabama. What was growing up like for her? Uh, how, how was life in New Haven, Connecticut in the early 1920s? Um, I think it was, uh, it was a, a, a sort of common experience of uh, immigrant families in the 1930s. Uh, my grandparents, my mother's parents immigrated from Nevis in the West Indies and about 1907, and settled in New Haven. And as my mother says in her autobiography, the the West Indians in New Haven were like the Italians and the uh, Greeks and and the Irish, who were, you know, all she said, all poor together. There wasn't a lot of anti-black feeling. They were they were just you know poor folks together. Um, but they had very cohesive, classic immigrant families. Um, and my mother's family was a very large family. She was one of nine children. And her parents were um, 
you know, coming from the West Indies, they had a very sort of Anglican consciousness. They were Anglican churchgoers, so they became pillars of the Episcopal Church in New Haven. And my grandfather was a very proud fellow, and, and his work in New Haven was as the chef of the Skull and Bones Society, one of the secret societies at Yale. But my mother said he still walked around New Haven as if he were the president of the First National Bank. I was the ninth child, and mischievous children were not permitted in our house. <laughs> you were told to sit down and read a book, or sit down and be quiet, and that was it. And uh, my mother would say to us, wait till your father comes home. Because my father had a leather belt that he used as a strap. And so all she had to say was, I'm going to tell your father when he, he gets home. You know, our parents were raised that way. And so we were being raised that way. You didn't talk back to your parents. The Dixwell Community House played a really big part in her growing up, and she talks a lot about it in her biography. Um, can you tell us about how it figured into her life, and is the Dixwell Community House still there? It's not, um, but it was there for a long time. I think it was torn down not so long ago, uh, but it was it was a pivotal place in her life. She was involved in the community center uh, while she was in high school. And then after she graduated from high school and was just working odd jobs, hoping to go to college, but with no idea of how to get to college, um, the Dixwell uh, community center was going to be shut down because it had a lot of governance problems and people were unhappy with it. And they had a public hearing to discuss the problems. And my mother went and she was one of the student leaders and she talked about the governance problems and what was needed to fix them. When I got to high school, I was going to all these meetings. I became the secretary of the New Haven Adult Council, Negro Adult Council. In the audience, unbeknownst to her, was a man named Clarence Blakesley, who was a wealthy contractor who had paid for the construction of the community center. And he was so impressed with her speech that he got in touch with her after the, after the event and asked her to come by his office, which she did. And he said, I was so impressed with your speech the other night. I wondered who you were and, and, and where, you, where do you go to college? And she said, I don't go to college. And he said, why not? And she said, well, we don't have any money to send me to college. And he said, well, I will uh, send you to school for as long as you want to go to school, just like that. And he did. And she went first to Fisk in Tennessee because she wanted to see what the South was like and what a, an all-black environment would be like, which she had not seen in New Haven. And, and then she transferred from Fisk. Fisk got a little wobbly and when World War II started, and a lot of the professors had to go into the service, so she transferred to NYU and uh, graduated from college at NYU in 1943, and then went to Columbia Law School and graduated from there in 1946, and Clarence Blakesley paid every dime of her tuition. When I got to high school, I began reading about Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson, and uh, this minister who had come from North Carolina had a course in black history. And I also 
read a, a book about Abraham Lincoln. He said that he thought one of the most difficult uh, professions was the legal profession. And so I decided that was what I was going to pursue. And so that sparked my, my interest in becoming something more than a hairdresser. Joel, something that most people may not know is that she had a real wry sense of humor. Uh, it comes out a lot in her press conferences. Uh, we played a clip at the beginning of the show when she was being um, nominated to the federal bench. And in that clip, we just heard when she says that being a lawyer would keep her from being a hairdresser. Was this a real big part of her personality? Oh, very much so. That was that was really very much a uh, a part of her personality. She was a very funny person and in ways that, you know, sort of went past some people uh, because her humor was so wry and dry. Uh, in fact, when she uh, first started at the Southern District as a judge, you know, the day she was sworn in, there was a big press conference there. And one of the reporters said to her, was she concerned about keeping up with the workload and most of the cases in the Southern District then were financial cases from Wall Street and her experience had been in the civil rights movement. And she said to the reporter, oh, yes, I'm I'm very concerned. I know I'm going to have to work extra hard to keep up with the men, she said, smiling. And, you know, I think there were reporters there who might have thought she actually believed that. Now, of course, later in life, she became a role model to many others. Um, but when she decided she wanted to be a lawyer, it may be surprising to some to know that she was not without role models herself. At that time, there was at least one role model, and that was Jane Boland. Jane Boland went to, graduated from Yale Law School about 1937. Her father was a lawyer. And then she came to New York, and she was appointed, I think, by LaGuardia to the domestic relations court. And so we had our first black woman judge, I think, in the country. And uh, all the time I was going to law school, at least, she was a role model. And then there was Eunice Hunton Carter. I knew about Eunice Hunton Carter and uh, Jane Boland when I was in high school. So I knew that it was possible for a black woman to become a lawyer. Joel, you're a lawyer yourself. Uh, how much parental influence did she have on that decision? What role did your mother play in your decision to pursue a career in the law? Um, well, I think like any parent, she had a, she had a big influence. Um, I remember when I was about nine or ten, we were uh, walking around in, in upper Manhattan and I told her I thought I wanted to be a policeman or a fireman. And she said, oh, that's interesting. Why do you want to do that? And I said, well, I think that'd be a nice way to be able to help people. And she said, well, you know, lawyers can help people, too. I said, really? H how is that? And she said, well, if, you know, somebody is working in a job, were injured on the job and couldn't work and couldn't pay his rent, a lawyer could help him bring a suit and get enough money to survive. 
And that was an eye opener for me and got me thinking about it. Uh, and then eventually I went through like a lot of people, some other career, uh, concepts. I thought about going to medical school and, uh, for a while, but that was certainly not, not me, but in the end, I wound up going to a law school at Harvard. I'd gone to Harvard College and uh, took a year off between college and law school and went to Harvard Law School. When I um, was at Columbia Law School, Herman Taylor was there, uh, a black young man. One of his three jobs was clerking for Thurgood Marshall. So when he got ready to graduate, he said to me, don't you want this job that I have? the Thurgood Marshall, because I'm leaving, you know. I said, oh, yes. He said, well, go on down, you know, and see him, which I did. And, of course, that's how I got the job as a clerk going to school my last year. With the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, she spent a lot of time on the road, traveling across the country, waging the legal battle for the full citizenship of black people. What was that like for you? And did you ever go out on the road with her? Oh, I did occasionally, yes. I mean, from when I was very small, even before my memory. But uh, what I remember most vividly was going with her to Jackson, Mississippi in 1961. I guess I was uh, nine uh, then. And um, she was working with Medgar Evers. Uh, who was the NAACP secretary for Mississippi uh, on the Meredith case. Medgar was the one who actually connected uh, Meredith with the Legal Defense Fund. And so I, uh, uh, well, my mother was working during the day with Medgar. I stayed with uh, Medgar's wife, Merle Evers, and their kids and in their house in Jackson. And I remember quite vividly Merle taking us to the park in Jackson. And we just, it was very, very hot there, as you can imagine. And we were sitting in the shade and this old white policeman ambled over to us and he looked sort of sad and he said, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but you can't stay here. This is the white section. You have to go to the black section. So I said, where's that? And he pointed to an area where they had some camels in a cage or something where there were no trees at all. And, uh, I think I said to him, I'm going to tell my mother about this, <laughs> which I did. That was also the first time I saw, you know, segregated water fountains, uh, segregated bathrooms. Um, but also, you know, two years later, 19, what was it, 63, so maybe four years later, Medgar was assassinated in front of his house. And that was really upsetting for my mother. And that, that's when she really started thinking about career alternatives. And, and then, you know, eventually 1964, joined the New York State Senate, and, but really kind of gave up on Mississippi. And I think part of it was she was so upset that Medgar died, but I think she was also traumatized by the notion that I could have been there and been killed. But I do remember that quite vividly. Joel, you mentioned the authoring Lucy case earlier in our conversation, and that's one where your mother had spoken about the presence of danger being a real possibility. Uh, what was the authoring Lucy case all about? 
Well, authoring Lucy was actually the first, she was the first uh, black student to uh, be admitted to the University of Alabama. Um, but the violence of the resistance to her admission was uh, overwhelming and she never, I believe, never really uh, was able to, to finish. Um, and there were terrible, uh, terrible riots there. My mother and Thurgood Marshall worked on that case together in my film. There's a there's a clip of them with author several, you know, uh, portions at the beginning of my mother and Thurgood and authoring Lucy and um, footage of the, uh, the, the protests that were going on from the white students um, in the community. And it was really uh, quite scary. Their courtroom battles were one thing, but to to put it bluntly, they were in some real danger, weren't they? Yes, they were. They were indeed. Um, I guess one of the eye openers for me when I was listening to the tapes from the Columbia Oral History Project was her describing when she and Thurgood went to Birmingham to stay at Arthur Shore's house in 1957. And his house had been firebombed several times before that. And the black community was determined that there would not be anything that would harm Thurgood, who was really the leader of the civil rights movement at the time. I remember when the authoring Lucy case was on in Alabama, we stayed with Arthur Shores, a local black lawyer. And he had been, been very successful, so he had a very big house. And there were no hotels then. And so there are a lot of black veterans from World War II in Birmingham and they really protected them and they actually surrounded the house and were in the garage with, my mother said, shotguns and machine guns. His house was guarded by local black men who were members of the NAACP who volunteered and they had shotguns and they would be down in his garage with the door open and you couldn't see them until you got to the crest of the hill. His house was built like on a, a hill and you couldn't see the door of the garage so you got right on a hill. But there were these men with machine guns and rifles guarding the house. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about black folks having machine guns in the civil rights movement. That's something you associated with, you know, the Israelis in the Irgun in 1948 or, or the Black Panthers, you know, in the 70s. But, but these World War II veterans were, were serious and uh, determined that they would be safe. And they were safe. My mother said she didn't sleep well that night, but nothing happened to them. I know. I think I went to bed, but I don't think I slept. And that's how we got through in Alabama. I had never seen a real gun in my life until I saw one in their hands. I had bought my son a play gun, you know, like every mother does foolishly. In 2013, I got a phone call from a fellow who said, you know, I'm the executive director of the Birmingham Bar Association. And we are having our first gala honoring the civil rights lawyer. So 63, so this was 2013, it's the 50th anniversary of the Birmingham year of uh, upheaval. 
and we're honoring those civil rights lawyers who are alive. And if they're not alive, we're asking their children to represent them. So I eventually agreed, agreed to go and was on the dais sitting next to Arthur Shore's daughter. And I told her what I just told you about the machine guns. And she said, oh, yeah. And my father had a machine gun and I still have it. Next week, we will continue our conversation with Joel W. Motley III, and we'll talk about the documentary he produced, The Trials of Constance Baker Motley. We'll learn how the documentary came to be, and he'll tell us what he thinks is his mother's lasting legacy. Her life is an example of the power of the law in our society. Uh, to transform the society for the better. Nowadays, when we have the rule of law under severe attack, we're reminded of, of that. But her life gives me confidence that we'll overcome this, this struggle as we did in the 1960s. That and more will be part of our next episode as we continue to shine the spotlight on Constance Baker Motley. Thank you for listening, and be sure to join us next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.